0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Okay, that's what we needed to hear this morning to get people going, isn't it? Because I know it doesn't look like it out there today, but spring weather, we hope, fingers crossed, is on its way. And with it, that means we'll be seeing more and more wildlife out there, especially bears in our midst, particularly if you live in certain neighborhoods of Metro Vancouver. Let's say hello to our contributor this morning, Raji Sohal, for more. Now, Raji, you live in one of these neighborhoods, don't you?
2: Mm -hmm, I sure do, Simi. Yes, I have to tell you about what the latest is, because I thought it was too early for this, but it certainly is not. So the BC Conservation Officer Service has said... It has intercepted a person they've been following for a while who's been feeding wild animals, bears, and coyotes for months no. on a trail in West Vancouver. They won't say which trail uh, makes sense. It's under investigation still. So this individual has been feeding the bears on this trail, Simmy, for months. And I have to tell you about a few others because this really made my head spin. A different West Van man. He's going to trial soon for his family feeding bears off the back patio at their home. They posted videos of it on social media. I remember Not those. Not gonna lie, yep. the videos are don't get mad at me. They're adorable. It's like this adorable family affair. It looks like something out of a cartoon. And a Port Moody resident got a two hundred and thirty dollar fine for leaving out tuna, hot dogs, and pet food for a bear that lived nearby. I'm gonna tell you about one more. It was a woman in Whistler. She had a weekly, <clears throat> sorry, she had a weekly order of ten cases of apples, fifty pounds of carrots and pears, and she attracted so many bears. Uh, she even named one of them who would visit regularly. She called that bear Lily. Okay, so of course some of these bears have uh, been killed because they became habituated. But the story made my head spin because every year, uh, you know, the Minister of Parks goes on, on TV and tells us to, to don't feed the bears. And certainly everyone knows they're not supposed to do it, but it still keeps happening. I don't understand.
1: Like, these are not pets They're not cute and cuddly, especially the person that you mentioned feeding them on the trails. You are putting other people in danger when you do that because what if this bear shows up and thinks that somebody else is going to give them food? What happens then?
2: Well, you've nailed it right there for sure. But where you are wrong, Simi, is that they are cute. I know they're dangerous. I know they're wild, but they are extremely cute. Otherwise, people would not be doing this because I think the only reason people are feeding bears is because they want to care for them. And then there's this disconnect in their minds. Get a dog. Where they forget that they're so dangerous. <laughs> Get a dog if you want oh, something know. to look after. But dogs are part of the problem, Simmy. I think that in this era where people like baby their own pets so much, you know, I I have friends that buy fancy coats for their dogs and fancy shoes for their dogs and their dog sleeps on their pillow and this kind of thing. And I think that people just like they anthropomorphize these animals so much to the extent that they forget how dangerous and wild bears are. When I have been out on a hike and I have seen a bear, I have the fear Of the whole universe deep in my heart. (laughs) You know, I get out of there so fast. Yes. What makes someone, you know, cross that line and think, hey, here's a hot dog that I was going to eat for lunch. I'm just going to pass it along to the bear. I
1: think you hit it on the head earlier. Is it okay? Maybe some people are doing it because they think the bears are cute, but others are doing it because it looks great on social media, Raji. That's what they want. They want to get those likes.
2: Oh, and they get those likes. The video of the man in West Van uh, that he shared of his family feeding this bear, I mean, it got so many clicks. I'm sure they got a lot of attention and probably uh, other people in their neighborhood thought, oh, huh, that doesn't look that dangerous to me. And then sadly, what happens is uh, these bears are killed because they become habituated. Last year, I did a series uh, one week on bear issues and... I came across uh this group of hikers in uh North Vancouver who would when they came across the same bear they would talk to it just what? like as if it was <laughs> as if it was a human being and I thought okay, maybe we are not doing enough to educate people on what happens when they habituate these bears. It's dangerous for for everyone, and then it's a sad outcome for the bears.
1: We're not strict enough. You mentioned fines of a couple of hundred dollars there. I was also reading a story how in Alaska, this happened uh, just two days ago, the U.S. Department of Justice announced sentences for three men who were caught in in a national park, but they left the public viewing platform that you're supposed To stay on because they wanted to take some selfies with bears in the background. So they left the platform, went down and stood in the river because there were brown bears behind them feeding on salmon in the river. And they thought this was great. They wanted to take these pictures and post them on social media. But check out the sentences, Raji. All three men handed a $3,000 fine, a year of probation. Uh, And also two of the men were given a week in prison. The third man was given 10 days in prison and they're banned from entering any national park for a year.
2: That's serious. (laughs) That is serious punishment. Okay, some people might call that overkill, but I'm saying that is my kind of sentence. If you wanna deter people from doing an activity, you have to loom one of these massive fines yes. over their heads. You just have to, otherwise the deterrent is not gonna work. You know, I am so tempted, increasingly I will admit to, for example, answer my phone when I'm expecting a, an important phone call um, while I'm driving um, or, an, or a text. And so my phone has gotten so far from me while I'm driving now nice. that I've, I've resorted to putting it in the trunk, Simmy, so that I yes. don't feel tempted. And I know what those fines look like, and I don't want one. And that's the principal reason why I'm not doing it.
1: See, that's the way to do it. I do the same thing. I put it in the back seat so you can't reach it. Plus, I have it on silent, so I don't even know it's ringing anyway. <laughs> but but go. again, that's the temptation the is overwhelming. And I just think if we really don't want people to do this, and you're right, the season is coming, we're going to have to find a way to uh, crack down. I'm going to think of you now when I see these stories coming up this spring. Uh, <laughs> (laughs) Uh, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Sorry, Raji Sohal there. We'll hear more from her a little bit later on the show. But if you've got this happening in your neighborhood, and I'm sure you've seen this before, you can tell us the story, Simi, at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, it is day two of the royal visit that has brought Prince Charles and the Duchess of Cornwall to Canada. In fact, they will be in Ottawa today. And of course, all of this marks the Queen's Platinum Jubilee year, marking 70 years on the throne. Well, Abigail Beeman has been covering this tour and joins us now to talk more about it. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. Now, let's start with how significant this visit is. What, what does it mean to say that there is this royal visit happening in the Platinum Jubilee year?
0: That's right. Let's unpack that a bit. So a few things here. Uh, it's significant because it's the first royal visit in five years. Now, of course, a large part of that break is due to the pandemic uh but the prince of wales and duchess of cornwall last visited canada in 2017 so it has been 5 years uh the queen has not visited uh since 2010 uh but but the uh, prince of wales and uh, duchess of cornwall has m- have made a number of trips here i believe this is actually their 19th or, or sorry his 19th trip uh, to Canada, uh, she has fewer trips here, but it's significant for that reason. And then let's talk about the the Platinum Jubilee. So this is a historic year for the royal family, with the Queen marking seventy years on the throne. Uh, and and this is sort of piping uh, up, let's say, or or uh, expanding celebrations. For the Platinum Jubilee, we saw uh, the Heritage Minister uh, announce some funding and uh, for events uh, just on the eve of the Royals arriving here, so there's some significance there. And then when we look at, you know, the actual visit and how it's unfolding and, and some of the themes uh, and focuses here, we know that the Prince of Wales would like to focus on reconciliation, uh, relations with Canada's Indigenous peoples, as well as uh climate change and sustainability and that's something that the prince of wales has long been passionate about.
1: Okay, so it is a, sh- a short trip here. It's just for a few days. What's on their agenda? What are they going to be doing?
0: That's right. It's uh just 3 days. There was an afternoon of events in Newfoundland yesterday. Today it's a full they arrived in Ottawa uh, last night and today it's a full day of events here in Ottawa. So I'm currently standing, I don't know what the noise is like in the background, but at the War Memorial <laughs> where a little later this morning uh, they will be laying a wreath here. They're, they will be visiting a Ukrainian church, meeting with members of the Canadian-Ukrainian community and obviously talking about the situation in Ukraine, uh, a visit to a school. They will take in the RCMP musical ride uh, a little later this afternoon. There are a whole bunch of meetings on everything from, uh, you know, sustainable investing and finance in, in the face of climate change to bilateral meetings with the prime minister and the governor general. And then it's all capped off with a Platinum Jubilee reception at Rideau Hall, the residence of the Governor-General tonight.
1: Okay, now, Abigail, I feel this visit is a little bit different because it seems to come at a time when in other Commonwealth countries, there is a bit of um, restlessness, let's say, when it comes to having these royal visits or just having an association uh, with the monarchy. Has that surfaced at all? Like, what what are we seeing about Canadians' attitude towards the Crown?
0: yeah that's right, and I think restlessness is a is a kind word uh there we saw we saw Barbados uh, cut ties with the monarchy uh, other Caribbean countries talking about doing the same thing, and we saw some protests at some earlier uh, royal visits uh, in the Caribbean uh so we'll we'll see what happens in terms of any crowds or protests uh, here in Ottawa. I'm not aware of any uh, from yesterday in Newfoundland, though I was not there. Uh, but it, it, it's interesting. The, the most recent polling we have comes from Angus Reid, which shows that just a slim majority, 51% of Canadians do not believe that the monarchy should just continue as is in, per, in perpetuity. Uh, only 26% actually of Canadians support that. The other interesting thing is that the Queen herself, we know, is is very popular among Canadians and, and in general. But a lot of Canadian support for the monarchy is tied up with the current Queen. And if you ask Canadians, well, would you support, you know, a hypothetical Prince Charles taking over as king, the support really drops off. Uh, uh quite a bit so the prime minister was asked about that yesterday and uh he said that canadians you know are not focused or interested in constitutional change uh they're interested in 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 many other issues of of the day or more pressing issues such as the economy and climate change uh but that is not uh, uh top of mind and and you know as i said we'll see there are uh, at any public events today like this uh Brief laying at the War Memorial, what the crowd size is like, and that's been you know sort of interesting to watch over over the decades. Let let's say with the Queen's visits to Canada, you know there's been years where she's just been absolutely uh, in in giant crowds yes. full of support, and there's been other times where it's been you know let's say less less supportive. So we'll see how that unfolds. And of course, the asterisk that I should point out is with the pandemic, that may not be such a fair. Uh, judge with with people still you know not true. feeling comfortable coming to, to coming to events but but we'll see. Well, yeah, that's
1: true. We will see later today. All right, Abigail, thank you. Thank you. It's Abigail Beeman, our global national correspondent.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: When we talk about our correctional system, there's one thing that we know absolutely for sure, and that is we incarcerate a disproportionate number of indigenous people in our jails. For instance, the Globe and Mail recently reported that Indigenous women make up 50% of the female population in federal prisons. But in all of Canada, only 4.9% of women are Indigenous. That is a huge disparity. So how do we even start to fix this? Joining us now to talk about that is David Lametti, the Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada. Thank you for being here.
3: It's my pleasure. Thank you. Good morning.
1: I understand you are on a tour in Saskatchewan and B.C. Is this the issue that you were talking about?
3: Uh, This is one of the issues. Uh, We're really outbuilding trust, uh, I think, with Indigenous uh, leadership uh, in Saskatchewan and B.C., uh, particularly on the residential schools file. And that's part of the reason why uh, we have uh, such high incarceration rates, the intergenerational trauma that is often at the cause of all of this.
1: So where do you even start to tackle it in your position?
3: Piece by piece, uh, I have a bill in front of the House of Commons right now that eliminates about 20 minimum mandatory penalties uh, and, more importantly, uh, restores the possibility where there's no threat to public safety uh, of additional sentence orders, so things like home arrest what often happens in a lot of these cases, uh, uh, you know, uh, classic cases is a, is, a, is a, a woman indigenous who has a problematic addiction caused by the intergenerational trauma and abuse that parents or grandparents uh, received and was and was translated to the kids. Uh, so has a problematic addiction, uh, having trouble putting bread on the table. Uh, perhaps sells some prescription medication on the side. Uh, in order to put bread on the table for her and her kids, she ends up getting charged, gets hit with a minimum mandatory penalty, four years, no possibility of a conditional sentence orders, no possibility to serve at home and get the help that she needs and ends up going into the federal uh, penitentiary system and we end up having to take their kids into care too. So it's 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 a uh, it's a mess. There's no point incarcerating that kind of person when the real problem is a health problem or a a problematic addiction or uh, other social problem. We need to attack it as a a health problem or a social problem. Right. Provide the kind of support necessary.
1: Yeah, as you just described it, though, that's not just your area, right? You're the Minister of Justice and Attorney General, so you can say, fine, we'll have mandatory minimums. But what about all of the other pieces? What about making sure that person gets the help they need?
3: Well, that's right. That means working with colleagues uh, and indigenous leadership to make sure that you know, adequate housing, adequate health care services uh, at the provincial level, um, better policing, uh, you know, empowering part of the bill that I put before the House uh, uh, establishes diversion away from the criminal justice system for cases of simple possession. So you know, empowering police officers to, to not arrest uh, the person for a simple simple possession charge, but actually bring them to a community justice center. There's a great um, initiative that we're supporting at the federal level in British Columbia with the government of British Columbia and the B.C. First Nations Leadership Council uh, to create uh, and support uh, Indigenous community justice centers where there will be an alternative to incarcerating someone uh, who should not be incarcerated. So all of these things are happening. It's it's small steps in multiple directions. Some of them are within my mandate. Some of them are within my colleagues' mandates, and we're trying to work together and with Indigenous uh, communities and leadership groups to, to make it better incrementally.
1: Right, so you say incrementally, so that obviously looks towards the future. But right now, as that statistic that we just mentioned here off the top, reported by the Globe and Mail, if you've got 50% of the population of you know, female prisons is Indigenous, how do you help the women who are there right now?
3: Well we need to work on corrections that that then certainly that's on Minister mendocino's radar screen uh, the amount of support that we gave that you know the con- the Conservative government under Harper just cut all of those programs and programming um, and so we need to we need to restore that I'm pretty confident that that bill I have before the House of Commons will uh, will have an immediate impact on incarceration rates of indigenous and and, and black Canadians as well Um uh, simply because it will give it will give options to not incarcerate people, and again, the, the better the better data and the better um, uh, expert advice is that incarceration simply is not working for these people, uh, and it's not working generally for for these kinds of crimes. It'll also help decrease some of the clogging up of the criminal justice system. Um, Uh, a a huge proportion of the target challenges in in, uh, the Canadian justice system right now in criminal law are challenges to minimum mandatory penalties.
1: Right. But I know here in BC, we've heard complaints about, um, you know, people not going to jail when they should be going to jail, people who are chronic repeat offenders and, you know, loosening up bail conditions sometimes puts those people back out, causing more problems too. Like, how do you get that balance?
3: Well, there's a challenge there we we did bail reform uh, it was a, a process that was initiated uh, by Jody Wilson raybould when she was a minister and then I finished the I got the bill over the finish line. So there is bail reform. we think it's having positive results. There are always going to be uh you know counter examples but but the principle is always that serious crimes get punished seriously when we talk about minimum mandatory penalties we're not talking about the maximum uh, we're not talking about the, the the serious end of the scale uh with respect to sentencing so those kinds of crimes will always be dealt with seriously uh the bail system we think we've made improvements to it uh we're watching that carefully um and again trying to trying to reduce trying to reduce the number of people who get caught in a revolving door in the bail system without decreasing the, the, um, the way the system function for serious crime.
1: I also wanted to talk about a recent Supreme Court of Canada decision. This is the one about extreme intoxication, saying that can't be used as a defense in crime. Well, that essentially overturns Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code, which says that's not allowed. Is, is your ministry prepared to deal with that?
3: we are indeed we're going to look carefully the the uh, i just want to remind your listeners first of all that this is extreme intoxication this is the intoxication is not a defense to crimes like sexual assault etc uh this is a very very rare set of cases uh where the, the person is in such a such an extreme case that they, they effectively become uh, a robot or an, an automaton and so We will deal with this. The Supreme Court has given us a couple of ways forward. We're going to look at those ways proposed. We're going to look at other ways forward. Um, But I just want to reassure your listeners that this isn't a free for all for for drinking as an excuse to crime. That's certainly not the case. The court took great great pains to point that out.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's David Lametti, the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General of Canada. He's on a tour of Saskatchewan and BC doing outreach with different Indigenous groups and First Nations. Uh, to talk about, in, in particular as well, how to deal with the aftermath, the uh, lingering trauma, of course, of the residential school system, and the huge impact that continues to have today, particularly when it comes to Indigenous people who are incarcerated. And how do we bring those numbers down? So if you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: If transit were free, would you get on board instead of driving your car? And would that help you deal with the price of gas right now? Well, our next guest seems to think so. Sonia Firstno joins us, BC Green Party leader, because she's got some ideas about this. Thank you for being here. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Simi. What is it that you think we should tackle here?
4: Well, I think as with a lot of uh, the challenges we face, we have overlapping crises in this province and... Uh, one of the things that we know that people are facing right now is a real challenge with cost of living. The news this morning about uh, the inflation rate being 6.8% is not going to be welcome for a lot of people, I expect, because it's not just gas prices that are, are really high, it's, it's food costs that are going up. So when we look at possible ways to help people out right now – The reason we put the idea of free transit for four months on the table is because typically gas prices over the summer are the highest. uh, And we know that they are the highest right now. And it also gives people a chance to plan, okay, if I can save $185 a month on that TransLink pass, um, what can I do with that $750 to help stretch out my other costs and and cover things that are becoming more expensive.
1: Right. But what about people who don't have, you know, easy access to transit? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are the very people who need their cars and probably drive yep. more than those who live near transit. And how does this help them?
4: Yeah. And, and I, I recognize this doesn't help everybody. This helps people that have access to transit and, and addresses that. And the, as the ICBC rebate for drivers, Um, Although I also recognize $100 isn't going to go very far right now. But what we also have to do, and this is what we made the call for earlier this week, is, is recognize this need to expand transit services to make them accessible across the province. And, you know, I'm in one of those regions where the only time you can get to Victoria from Cowichan is first thing in the morning. The only time you can get back is early afternoon. And if that doesn't fit your schedule, there's no transit option for you in Cowichan. And and I think that we have to recognize the future we want to be creating needs to be multimodal, needs to get people uh, the options to not be in their cars. And it needs to include really reliable, accessible transit. So the other thing government needs to do is make those investments, create that vision in all parts of the province to have that transit infrastructure
1: Right, but that's more of a long-term vision, isn't it? Because when we're talking about helping people alleviate the pain of price at the pump, by saying that transit is free, you're just helping the people who probably regularly take transit anyway.
4: Yep, um, it, that's that's right, Simi. But those people who regularly take transit didn't get, uh, if they don't have a vehicle, didn't get the ICBC rebate, Um and so it also recognizes that, uh, that there's ways to, to help different people in different ways. The other thing that this government could be doing, and, and I've been pushing on this for a long time, we have a carbon tax. Um, and when you look at the original kind of idea behind the, the carbon tax, it was carbon tax and dividend. Um, in BC, that dividend is about 100 and I think it's going up to $193 if your income is below $32,000. That's the maximum dividend you can get. Compare that to the federal program that's implemented in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and it's between six dollars and $700 per individual. So we could look at that uh, carbon tax and find ways to ensure that that dividend is getting to more people, more families, and more regularly have a quarterly uh, dividend from that carbon tax, which ultimately... The, the design of it was meant to help alleviate the, uh, the cost of transitioning the economy for, to a low-carbon economy. And BC really abandoned that piece where this is meant to help people, help families, and help with affordability. Do you support the
1: suspension of the gas tax? I know that's something that has come up on the BC Liberal side of things. That has been their suggestion. What are your thoughts on that?
4: Well, you know, this goes right back to the the carbon tax, and and uh, if we were to give those dividends out, I think people would would see that, um, you know, there's a way to make this system work, and it those dividends can be used to address the affordability, to help, uh, you know, make a, a purchase of an electric bike, make a purchase towards a, an e vehicle, find other ways to reduce your uh, your cost of living costs. There's lots of ways that it could be applied. And what's needed is that recognition from government that um, these, these mechanisms have to have built into them a way to alleviate that pain, that financial pain for people.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thanks so much, Simi. Have a good day. That's Sonia Snow, who is the leader of the BC Green Party, talking about their idea bringing forth this idea that in dealing with these high, high gas prices that we have here in Metro Vancouver, that what the government should do is make riding the bus, the SkyTrain, the C-bus, all other forms of public transit free for the next four months. Now, let me ask you, do you think that is something that would help you deal with the high price of gas? Like my feeling on that is that doesn't help necessarily people living in the burbs because you're the ones who have to travel farther in your car. Transit is also not as readily and easily accessible to you. It's necessary for you to have that car. So are you more likely to get on transit if the trip is going to take you longer, if transit is free? And does that help you deal with gas prices? Anyway, weigh in with your thoughts on this. Simi at CKNW.com. You can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. I myself, as you can tell, a bit skeptical that this would do anything. I mean, I agree with the long-term goal of we need to make transit more accessible to people who live just outside of Vancouver, south of the Fraser, everywhere. I've been saying that for years. Need to get better transit options for people who live out that way. But giving it free as a means of dealing with gas prices, I don't think that's the way to go. But you can tell me what you think, simi at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So earlier this morning, we were talking to Abigail Beeman with Global National about the royal visit here to Canada. Prince Charles, Duchess of Cornwall are here. And really, a lot of people are going to be looking at kind of crowd sizes, the level of interest Canadians have in this visit. It has, you know, dwindled in recent years. Only about 34% of polled Canadians said they would support the monarchy in coming generations Once the queen herself has passed away, there used to be huge crowds together for these royal visits. We haven't really seen that in a long time. For more on this now, we're joined by our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji.
2: Hi, Simi. Yeah, I think... You know, after Will and Kate's visit to the Caribbean, where they were challenged about colonial history, I think that going forward, these visits are going to just always involve a little bit of controversy and probably not those huge crowds that they used to see of people cheering the monarchy on. And I think one of the ways that the royal family can try to, uh, I guess, rehabilitate their reputation um, in Canada is to engage with Indigenous issues. And they are doing just that on this visit. So Prince Charles and Camilla, Duchess of Cornwall, they're on this uh, visit now, day two. They're visiting uh, memorials for lives affected by residential schools. Uh, They're visiting with Indigenous people in the Northwest Territories. Um, But there have also been some calls from within Indigenous communities that this visit should include some kind of an apology on the Queen's behalf. Um, I talked to Dale Smith. He's a freelance journalist in the Parliamentary Press Gallery. And he says, not so fast. Uh, Smith says that constitutionally, it's just not allowed.
5: It would be tremendously inappropriate for the Queen or the royal family to apologize is because our entire constitutional order um, is built on the foundation that the Queen can do no wrong. Or the king, if that's the case at the time being. But this is a principle that goes back um, to at least the 17th century. And why that's important is because things like our entire justice system are the foundational element is that this is, you know, the queen is the fount of justice. Uh, and therefore, any justice to be had is through her. Um, and therefore, she must remain blameless if this, uh, if this particular notion is to hold, and as a result of that, um, this is why the doctrine uh, around responsible government and responsibility has grown around the fact that the queen does no wrong, it's her advisors who are always the ones at fault, and those are you know the usually her ministers, her first ministers um, being prime ministers and premiers, uh, and really. It also comes down to the fact that the Queen herself or or any King or Queen in centuries has really played very little active role in making any of these kinds of decisions. Um, they always act on advice of their of their ministers. And that includes the policies that led to things like residential schools
1: that's that's an interesting argument, I think, Raji. But here's the thing, right? we all I think we all agree. The Queen is the symbolic, head of state. So even as the symbolic head of state, a symbolic apology would still be good.
2: Right? Yes, I pressed Smith on that. But he just said that Parliament Supreme, you can't assign actual blame to the Queen for things that were done in her name, and that the governments who serve in her name, because of this constitutional principle that uh, the Queen can do no wrong, it's the governments who can take blame.
5: They play a, a particularly ceremonial role when it comes to um, matters of state and pageantry. And that certainly has important symbolic value when it comes to things like truth and reconciliation. Uh, but that can only go so far before we butt up against that same particular principle. Uh, Prince Charles has always been particularly um, admiring of indigenous peoples and cultures. And I think. Uh, He's probably got a lot more personal investment in this particular uh, exercise uh, than others in the family probably do. And it's also a certain amount of of duty as uh, it relates to the, the Canadian state. Right now, uh, the mood of the country is very much uh, one around truth and reconciliation. And as a result, the our, our head of state, you know, the the queen needs to be mindful and, and reflective of that as well.
2: And I think they are being reflective of that. Like, I'm looking now for um, expressions of sorrow. And although, no, that's not an apology, um, I think it's really important, a really important aspect of this visit. And yet, Simi, I think that ultimately the Queen, as the head of state, I realize constitutionally it's not her role to weigh in with an apology. However, I think that symbolically that would carry so much weight and importance for Indigenous communities.
1: Yeah, I do wonder that with all the kind of negative publicity royal visits have gotten just in the last couple of months, if maybe the palace should have said, you know what? We're going to kind of put these on ice for a little while until we can figure out a a more appropriate way of doing these that would be more reflective of what the communities want.
2: So I think they will. My guess is that the royal family is going to hold back on royal visits because the world has changed and people are so much more critical of colonialism than we ever have been. Um, So I think that the nature of these visits is going to change. I bet you the frequency of them is going to change. And ultimately, it begs the question, are we going to have a monarchy for much longer?
1: Yeah, that's, an, that's a good one, too, because I think people can now, we know the Queen has mobility issues. They're they're seeing, obviously, her age. She's in her 90s. And people are asking, what comes next? Do you think Canadians will question that once that happens?
2: Absolutely. Uh, the statistics show that polled Canadians uh, really admire the Queen, but not the other members of the family nearly as much. And so when, when it falls under King Charles, um, you know, I don't expect people to endorse the monarchy very much anymore.
1: Yeah, I think it's we're in for some big changes on that one. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks, me. So interesting. That's our contributor, Raji Sohal, talking about the idea of the monarchy. You know, apologizing. Uh, for the residential school system and what happened here in Canada. And really the whole idea of these Royal visits. When we talked to Abigail Beeman about this earlier too, she said that's something that everybody's going to be watching very carefully today. The Royal visit with Prince Charles, the Duchess of Cornwall in Ottawa for a whole bunch of events today. And they will, the weather is decent. So, you know, will crowds come out and greet them? What will that be like? Well, I'm sure you'll be hearing more about